This is the Made It in Music podcast, show 123. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, host of the Made It in Music podcast. And today we've got a good one. Episode 123 with Kale Dodds, How to Stand Out as a New Country Artist. In this episode of the Made It in Music podcast... I get to sit down with Kale Dodds, who is a country artist and songwriter who moved to Nashville in 2011 to pursue his music career and subsequently ended up signing to Warner Nashville as an artist. Kale's success has yet to slow down. Touted by Rolling Stone for his smooth pop country crooning over arena-ready arrangements distinguished by clever lyricism, and I can echo that. The man is a brilliant lyricist. This Columbus, Georgia native minds his own experiences in songs. Dodds has already garnered early praise as a CMT Listen Up artist and a Google Play country artist to watch. Meanwhile, his tune Out of My System scored a slot on Amazon Music Unlimited's Best Country Songs of 2017 list. That's a couple years ago, but still worth noting. And Dodds has already garnered garnered more than 30 million streams on Spotify alone. That is super impressive for a new artist. Currently working on a new record, Kale's latest release, Where I Get It From, paints a picture of his Southern heritage and offers a fun anthem for those who grew up in the South. And for that matter, people who grew up in a small town. Be sure to check Kale's music out via any of the streaming services or on YouTube. Um, some great quotes from the episode. Talks about during your co-writes, try to wear a different hat in the room, meaning bring something unique to the table. And I can definitely say, having written with him a bunch, that he does this. And the other quote that I love, just a two-word quote that uh, bears repeating, he just said, be undeniable. And that's really what it takes to stand out as a new country artist nowadays, to be undeniable. So Kale's here with us to share his incredible story about how he made it in music, and he's here to help you do the same. All right, Kale, you're here at the Full Circle Music Studios. Thank you. You're a busy man, a rising star. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time to... uh, chat with us today. It's so awesome. I love this setup, man. You have the best studio in Nashville, and I'm not just saying that. <laughs> well, that, that means a lot because you've probably been working at a lot of really cool studios. I have. You have this like compound here, and it's just uh, <laughs> it's just a thing, man. It's a, it's inspiring, and it's a vibe, so it, I love a, what you did. I love what you did with the place, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Looks awesome. That's awesome, man. Well, let's just jump right into this let's thing. What was the first dollar that you made in music? Oh, wow. Um, well, I've been playing music since I was 13 years old with my brother. Uh, and it was actually a very humbling moment because I remember our parents drove us to a gig, uh, probably, I don't know, it was like 10 minutes from our house. You know, it wasn't far. And I remember it was like a, a buddy paid us like a hundred bucks to play in his garage. May not even have been that much, but I remember th- getting the money and coming home, you know, our parents picking us up and taking us home. And I remember on the way home saying, uh, you know, this is great. 
you know, at, you know, hundred bucks to a thirteen year old is awesome. And I remember my dad was driving my mom's suburban at the time, and he goes, "Well, that's great. Well, you know, fifty of that goes into filling up the tank." And he goes, uh, "You know, and you guys were, were going to eat, so you guys probably paying for that too, right?" And I just remember looking at my brother, thinking, "We have a long way to go <laughs> before we can make this work." But it was a really humbling experience because. As excited as we were, I'm glad my dad took the wind out of my cell at that moment because he was right. You know, at 13, you're not thinking about filling up the gas tank and paying for food and everything, but to make a living out of it, it, it kind of honestly lit a fire under me to really, you know, start scratching a little harder than just playing in garages. So you're 13. Did you grow up in like a musical family? I mean, that's pretty young to start yeah. gigging out and getting paid for it. You know, what's wild is... Did not grow up in a musical family, but what we did grow up with or what I did grow up with is a dad that loved music and a mom that loved going to concerts. So from a young age, I can remember climbing up in my dad's Bronco and him always having the country station playing and my mom picking me and my brother up from school, always playing top 40. And uh, you know, the first concert I can remember is the Beach Boys. And it was uh, at, at Callaway Gardens in Georgia, about 30 minutes from where my hometown is. And I just remember seeing, I don't remember much, but I actually remember a lot for being about eight, seven, eight years old. But I just remember seeing everybody so happy and dancing and singing along. And I remember just whatever that feeling was, I wanted to be a part of it. And my grandfather had this old guitar that he didn't really play. He was in, in the army. And... Uh, it was given as a gift to him. And I remember every time we'd go over there to visit, me and my brother would run to the, the back room, his office, after saying hey to him. And uh, I would just pick up that guitar and, and hold it and just beat the crap out of it, trying to make it make a noise. And my hands wouldn't even fit around the neck. And it was just one of those things that it, it felt like was calling you. You know what I mean? So, no, I, I didn't grow up in a musically inclined family, but my parents loved music and loved concerts. And... uh that's that's what lit the fire for sure. Yeah. From age 13, how long was it before you experienced a moment where you could like literally just say music was your mm. living? I'm still waiting on that day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, honestly, for me, gigging at 13 kind of started the circuit of playing house parties and, you know, bars downtown in Columbus, Georgia, just to kind of get the circuit going. And I was writing my own songs at the time, but you know, you try to fill a three hour slot, you know, at a bar, you play an hour of originals and two hours of covers. So right out of high school, but right before college, we were playing the college frat circuit, you know, the Greek life circuit a lot, just bars and, you know, frat parties and stuff. And it was like, you could see the light at that point of, Hey, we could make a, a living out of doing this. And um, when I moved to Nashville, I was so broke. I couldn't even afford to pay attention. I mean, it was awful. Uh, but I was living in a garage and I would write during the week. I'd gig on the weekends. And to make rent, I would, whether it was money from the gigs or cutting yards, I would wake up super early. Like I'm talking like 5 a.m., 6 a.m. just to cut a few yards during the week. So I could write during the afternoon and at nights during the week and then go on the road on the weekend. So um, and it wasn't until my publishing deal, I was able to really stop cutting yards and waking up neighbors and at 5am. Um, but that was a big kind of turning point for me, uh, in order to feel a little bit more secured and concentrating on the art versus 
scrounging up rent. So the publishing deal was like signing. Was that the moment that you were like, okay, I'm quit. I'm not cutting grass anymore. Yeah. Not that I'll never do it again, but, uh, you know, the publishing deal allowed me to go full time and, you know, put all thought into the craft versus, you know, coming in smelling like gasoline and grass clippings all over me to a, a session. So yeah, the publishing deal, which is funny because at a, at a time I needed a publishing deal the most, I got one or I had one offered to me and I was so excited and it just wasn't a great deal. Something about my gut said it wasn't right. And so I ended up not doing it. And it took two years after that before I actually got uh, another offer. And um, I'm really glad I waited because as much as it sucked to continue cutting yards, I don't know if I'd be sitting here right now if I signed that deal. So what was the journey that led up to signing that deal? Like, how did you Mm -hmm. get that deal in the first place? Well, when I moved to Nashville, I didn't know anybody. And I just wanted to get in the writing circle, the community. I would go to rounds. I would go to shows, uh, you know, showcases, bars. I mean, literally didn't know a soul and just... I would go meet people. I'd go to rounds at the listening room or, you know, Bluebird sit in the back and just literally when people got done, I had my little makeshift business card from, uh, from Office Depot that was just crappy. And uh, I'd, I'd go try to exchange information and, you know, sooner or later, a few people bite and then they introduce to someone else and, well, they have a third co-writer coming. So you make friends with them. And, you know, I think in this town, you can be as busy as you want to be. And I think for me, I was so hungry to be, just co-write because I was, I was writing songs by myself since I was 13. I didn't know what co-writing was. Um, so I was trying to get into that community. I wanted to publish and do. I knew there was more of a sound in me that, that was just there that I wasn't tapping into yet. And I knew there was more about songwriting that I didn't know. And there still is, which is part of the reason I love it because it's, it's not monotonous. It's always different. And I had so much to learn. So I just, honestly, it, it sounds kind of, you know, storybook, but i I just hit the ground and went anywhere and everywhere and just started meeting people and just wasn't shy about it. I think that's part of the key to you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable in order to kind of take that next step, turn the next page. So um, those, those moments paid off, you know, for sure. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. Like what, what do you mean by being uncomfortable? Well, first of all, songwriting is a, a vulnerable thing. And I think you have to be, comfortable with the people you're doing it with. Um, I've found that my best songs, whether I've recorded them or had them cut by someone else, are songs that I wrote with people that either A, are truly my good friends, or B, that I, you know, maybe I'm not great friends with, but when we're in the room together, it feels like we're really good friends and we're just super, we're, we're, it's it's vibing. Um, some of that, one of the big learning experiences for me was uh, all the guys that maybe were either heroes to me or I really looked up to because they wrote A, B, and C song turned out to be some of my worst co-writes and not because of them personally, well, maybe, but not because of them personally, but because we just didn't vibe. And, you know, you leave there defeated. I, I used to, I remember leaving a lot of rights frustrated because we either didn't get anything or um, what we got is not what I wanted it to be or I felt like they didn't like what I was doing in the room. I, just, I think you have to be okay with that. And, you know, you, I heard when I moved here to find your group, your circle, your friends to write with and grow together with them. And I heard that and I believed it, but it really took figuring that out myself to to do it, you know? And that's not to say that people can't write hit songs that I've never met before. But I believe when you look at 
you know, the blueprint of everything that's happened. Uh, it's people that have camps, you know, I mean, from the peach pickers that wrote together forever to, you know, to, to, to Gorley and Copperman, you know, the McAnally and his camp with Josh Osborne, like all those guys have been writing together forever before they had hits. And I mean, the list goes on, but, um, I say all that to say, getting back to the original question, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, whether that's something new on stage as a performer or in the writer's room specifically being vulnerable and, uh, you know, and figuring out your position in the room. You know, I, I came to town thinking, you know, since I've been writing by myself for years, I should be good at everything, you know, um, not, and I, I never ran tracks or anything like that, but I, I just tried to contribute to everything uh, instead of being in the room, recognizing that maybe you're a great melody guy and he's a great lyricist. So maybe I should vibe on something musically or maybe I'm the only lyrical guy in the room. I should drive the ship on that while the track guy is really vibing with the melody that, you know, I think the self-awareness of that changed the game for me in regards of uh, my songs getting better. And, uh, and, and trusting my co-writers more, you know? So do you, how do you develop that self-awareness? Do, is it like people literally saying, Hey, you're, you know, you suck at lyrics or mm-hmm. you I mean, I can't imagine it's that extreme, but like, how did you, how did you develop that? I think the same way you need to be, have that camp, that group of people, that vulnerability. I think that you have to have those people trust them enough that will give you not only just feedback, but honest feedback. Um, for me, I, I had a group of people that I wanted to know, you know, I think it's that self-awareness of wanting to be better. And, and I'd ask and say, Hey, you know, whether we're eating dinner after a ride or whatever, Hey, how was I in the right today? Be honest with me. Do you feel like I, you know, uh, was hard to, uh, hard to get a line past? Do you feel like I try overpowered, whatever, you know, I think you have to ask those questions. You but, would just, you would just literally ask whoever you were riding with. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think that's important. I, I think the want to, to be better at that is super important. Uh, there's a couple times that even good friends of mine, we've just been in casual conversation and I've just brought it up to see what they'd say. And they kind of broke down and were like, oh man, I, I never knew how to say this, but like, I would love if we blah, blah, blah more. And I just had no idea. They seemed happy and loved it, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, but whatever it is, I think, being able to have that open communication with your co-writers is super important and just trying different stuff too. try wear a different hat in the room. Don't always try to be the guy that is melody or lyric or, you know, track, whatever. Um, Cause man, it's whatever it is that keeps the creative vibe flowing. You know, I, I, here's one. I I used to be really bad about, this is a real example, bad about uh, stopping during the first verse. Like if we're just started writing the song, somebody had a title, somebody has a melody and a groove and we get it going. And we're two lines in the first verse. It feels really good. And we say a third verse. And I'm not big on the third verse. Maybe I I don't like the line. I used to do this all the time. And everybody else in the room loves it. I would, you know, Kale three years ago would stop and go, hold on, we can't move on until we fix this line. It's not right yet. And they go, yeah, well, it's, it's good to me. Well, it's good to me too. And I go, well, it's not great though. And the other ones are great. I've learned from people that I'm close to and that I trust to go, hey, keep going. Finish the song or finish the vibe. Like, don't stop the creativeness that's happening right then and come back to it. 
because that's okay. <laughs> you know, that was probably, that was a huge learning factor for me that a good, uh, one of my confidant, Corey Crowder, um, that he, that he told me when I was asking him for feedback is just get the river or get the boat going down river and then come back, you know? So that's, that's been a big one for me. Yeah, no, that's great advice. So uh, I want to ask you, do you have a book or record that you have recommended mm. most to people over the years? I do. The book is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Great book. You've read it? Phenomenal book. Read when it last year. Nice. Uh, I try to read it once a year. And those who have read it know why. And I don't want to ruin it for those who haven't, but I recommend everybody, regardless of what you're doing in life, whether you're in sales or, or music, but especially creatives that are trying to maybe make their hobby a living or maybe make their creative, you know, their art, you know, take it to another level, or maybe they've been doing it for a while and, you know, maybe don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. But regardless, I, I recommend anyone and everyone read that book. And everyone I've said that to that has read it always goes, I get it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, yeah. that happened to me. That's why I read it. And I'm very thankful for it. Yeah. It's, it's so inspiring. Um, I want to talk about failure a little bit because failure is a, can be a positive thing if it turns into a learning experience. Mm -hmm. This is a strange question, but do you have a favorite failure? I have a favorite failure that sits at the top of the list that's mm -hmm. yet to be knocked off from the top spot. <laughs> I went to an unconventional high school. The the first, my freshman year of high school was the first year this high school was open. So, and it only was ninth and 10th grade. And so then it, the next year was ninth, 10th, 11th, so on. Point being, by the time I was in eighth grade, after starting to play music from the age of 12, 13, it kind of was known in our little community that me and my brother were musicians and, and, and playing music. My brother had been playing drums in school band since sixth grade. I had just kind of been self-taught and picked up stuff from neighbors that played and, you know, watching stuff online and whatnot. And honestly, by ear a lot. I had a lot of bad habits. You know, I, I had backyard technique, you know. Um, but I had never gone to an actual music class. And I had not had any actual musical knowledge besides what I had learned by myself playing along to the radio and records, um, which was fine with me because I was writing songs and performing them. And, you know, so long story short, I got a call from the band, the, the, the band director uh, summer before freshman year. And he asked me, he said, Hey, I understand that you play bass at the time I was playing bass and guitar. I understand you play bass. We need a bass player in the jazz band. I said, oh, okay. Uh, I didn't know a ton about jazz. Um, and I told him that. And I said, I've been, you know, I've kind of been only been playing for a couple of years and I write songs and whatnot, but that sounds fun. He goes, literally, you would get to play bass for an hour and a half during the school day. That's it. And that sounded amazing to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I said, absolutely. And he knew my brother. My brother had been in band for years. He could read music and all that. So I go and the first day of school, I get my bass out and he sets a chart down in front of me that was like level four music theory. And everyone in there was older than me. I was a freshman. They were all sophomores. They had all been in band since they were in sixth grade. I was the only guy in there that could not even read anything musical. I knew tabs 
And he was such a militant band director, as most are. You've seen Mr. Holland's Opus. I have. It was that guy. You know what I mean? It was literally that guy. And uh, he made me feel like the biggest idiot. But for the first, I mean, literally, it's like setting your child, your 14-year-old child, in a level three or four Spanish class after never being, uh, you know, um, exposed to any Spanish. And I played along by ear for the first couple weeks by the grace of God. And I would just take the music home and kind of record what we do in the room and try to follow along. So I know it for, you know, the end, the end of week, uh, performance, you know, so I wasn't missing any notes for a while, but sooner or later he, he kind of caught on and he was so mad and he basically discouraged me so much. He kicked me out of band and he told me that if I didn't know how to read music, that I would never play music the rest of my life and that I would never make a living playing music. Um, that was probably the best thing that could happen to me because I'm the only guy in that jazz band class that is still playing music today. Wow. Not only professionally, but as a living, yeah. but literally that still plays their instrument. Wow. It was just, you know, the other guys don't even own their horns or anything anymore. Yeah. And I followed up because I wanted to know. So <laughs> um, that was very inspiring to me because it was, uh, you know, I was told I can't and wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. And so I got kicked out three months in. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thankful for that. That's good, man. That's good. Yeah. So before you dove in on a full-time level, got the publishing deal. Mm -hmm. Um, You signed a record deal now with Warner, which is awesome. Thank you. Congratulations on that. I I appreciate it. What was the number one thing that you felt like held you back Mm. from jumping in full on to music? Well, like I said, I've been playing since I was 13. So I've always been trying to make it full-time. I do remember after high school, when I was doing the college circuit a lot, I was in, I was in this marketing class in college, and I had done a couple years of college in Columbus, Georgia, and I remember the professor and I remember his name. He, I was struggling because I had academic scholarship and we were touring on the weekends, so it was almost impossible to keep my grades up and tour on the weekends because we'd leave Thursday night and come home Sunday night and have an eight a.m. Monday morning class and. I've had ADD since I was a child. So it was, I was literally like struggling just to write lyrics and stay awake in class. And if I was awake, I was working on song ideas, not paying attention to a lecture. So I remember Dr. Brown calling me to his office. Uh, It was time for advising. And it was uh, before the next semester starts and he was going to help advise me on classes. And I remember going to his office and getting all my stuff out and him telling me, put all that away. And I thought I was in trouble, like most people do. And I remember him saying, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, getting advised? <laughs> Trying to learn? I don't know. And uh, he said, no, no, what are you doing here? Like in Columbus. I said, you know, this is where I live, going to college. He said, I know you want to be in Nashville. I don't know why you're not there. Because I did this whole paper on it and how I'm going to move there after I graduate. And oh, wow. he said, my marketing class is doing nothing for you he goes, pack your stuff and move to Nashville. And I just remember thinking, my professor, who's supposed to be signing me up for his courses next class, you know, next semester, is saying, dude, go live your dream. And he was right. And I, I, I was living my dream. I was touring on the weekends, but I wasn't all in. 
And uh, I literally went home that night, called my parents and told them that I was moving to Nashville. And the irony of the whole story is I had and have, I guess, technically three classes to graduate and I, I didn't do them. I'm not saying I never will, but I had to move to Nashville right then. Yeah. I, I feel like when you, once you realize your mission, your purpose, that's when you start living. Mm. And I knew mine, but I wasn't all in. Yeah. And you can't just tow in the water with it. You know, you got to go all in. Yeah. So I moved up here and I was living in a garage for the first few years with nothing and mowing yards, but I went all in, you know, and I, I haven't regretted it a second, but I'm thankful that I had somebody to say that to me. It's good. What's, uh, tell me, what's one thing that's working for you right now? Working for me. Well, I'm at a phase right now where I'm about to embark on radio tour. And, uh, what, you know, somebody, I, I was asking a lot of artist friends and a lot of just peers around me about how to do my best. You know, what, what's, what's the best way to do it, you know? And there was a lot of advice and there was a lot of, you know, they were talking about the songs, you know, the, if you're taking whoever with you and uh, what to say, to do's, not to do's. But somebody gave me the best, most simple just bit. And it was just, just be undeniable. And, you know, I think if you aim for that, the rest takes care of itself, you know, from your songs to how you present yourself. If you can leave there just feeling like you were undeniable at the end of the day, that's all you can do. And uh, so to me, I, I've tried to take that approach with a lot of other things in my life outside of music too. If whatever the situation is, just make it undeniable. How do you, how do, you do that tangibly? You know, I, I think it's, like you said earlier, attention to detail, self-awareness, just being all that you can for the situation. You know, I had a, I had a gig the other night that was acoustic and it was kind of an intimate thing. And, uh, I just, I prepared for it. You know, I did different versions of, you know, we spent all this time making these records and all these sounds and everything. And, you know, who knows more than you, you're a producer and, you know, oh, but, you know, and you get it and it's great. You spend all this time on the mix and, oh, but they want to hear the acoustic version. So it was tough for me to try to make acoustic versions of a few of the songs, but I spent a lot of time doing it. And I feel like that paid off because it was one of my favorite gigs I've done. Um, but I feel like presenting yourself with, your story, knowing your story, uh, you know, and being able to communicate that effectively, I think is important. You know, um, I don't think you can ever prepare too much for something like that. It's good. A couple more questions. If, if you woke up tomorrow morning and still had all the experience, knowledge, skill sets mm -hmm. that you currently possess, but your business, that your, 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 your record deal, whatever it is, went away, mm -hmm. and you had to start from scratch. What would you do? Tech. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you know, not not to sound redundant, but this was never a question for me. You know, I want to be the guy. I don't want to be the guy that says, I can never do anything else. I wouldn't know how. Because I think I could, like, figure something out, but I wouldn't. You know, uh, I feel like my true north has always been what I'm doing. And... I just feel like it's a matter of being patient. Um, but tech tech would be something that if I had to choose, you know, or in management, you know, management is, I think, huge in, in this field and uh, overlooked a lot, I think, you know. Yeah, like it could still keep you in the game. 
But yeah. Like if for, some, for, if for whatever reason I couldn't play or sing or write, you know, I, I feel like uh, the management side of things would, it, it's always been interesting to me. You know what I mean? It's good. Will you manage me? Yeah. Uh, 20% <laughs> for you, 80 for me. I'm kidding. So uh, as we're wrapping up, what, what are you working on, man? Is there, is there anything you're working on currently that you want to share with our audience? Yeah. Uh, I'm working on a record. Shocker, right? Shocker. Uh, working on a record. I've got six done. We're doing this thing. Uh, you know, we had such a crazy time right now with the way things are with just releases and digital and, uh, trying to embrace it. And instead of releasing a record at the time or at a, a whole record at a time or a single at a time or an EP at a time, I'm doing doubles. I'm not the first person to do it, but, uh, it's, you know, two at a time every other month. And I've only recorded six so far. And, uh, so I've only released four. Um, I've released two in October, two last month, and I've got two coming out in January. Um, the single is take you back and it'll be, it'll be, it'll go to radio in March. But when I start radio two in January, I'll be showing the PDs, the first six sides. And I just shot a video for take you back. So I'm excited. Uh, we should be seeing a rough cut of that today, actually. Um, and I'm excited about that. Uh, and then on top of that, I got a handful of shows, but writing a ton, you know, um, I, I love, I love the art and, and, and the craft, especially when you get, you know, you're gone so long touring and all of a sudden you, you know, you, you kind of get that fire to, to create again. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. 2018 is going to be an extremely busy year, but, um, I'm excited to, to get it going. And, and I think the first, we're going to hit the ground running the first week of January with going and starting in New York for radio tour. So it's awesome. So how, how can people, uh, interact with you? Socials. Um, you know, I, I love, I love, you know, responding to, to people on socials. So, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, it's just at Kale Dodds, C-A-L-E-D-O-D-D-S. Awesome. We'll, we'll tag it in the description and everything. Awesome. So you can find it. So, well, man, I, it's been absolutely, if I haven't told you before, I'm like a, a super fan of Kale Dodds. Oh, come on. I hope everybody else who's watching this will soon become one as well, too. You're the real deal. Thank you, man. Um, incredible songwriter, incredible artist, incredibly hard worker. That's something that, you know, you can just, you can spot that a mile away. Well, I appreciate that. I, so. I was a fan of yours before we met and, and you know that. So it's good to finally be on air with you because I've listened to a handful of these things and it's, you know, when you asked me originally to do this to talk about, you know, how to make it in the music business, I started writing down questions for you to tell me, <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you having we'll me on, man. I'm next a, time. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and this has been the Made It Music Podcast, produced by the Full Circle Music Company with editing help from Jordan Salamone. Head over to our show notes page for links to all the resources and things we talked about. That's madeitinmusic.com slash 123. That's 123. And uh, if there's anything that you want to hear in the upcoming podcast, or if you had a question maybe for Kale uh, or for any of us about this interview, you can just tweet us. It's just at official FC music, as in full circle music. Just send us a tweet on Twitter at FC music. And we always love to hear from you guys and stick around for the next episode coming up next week, which is going to be a really good one. We've got an episode with CCLI. For those of you guys who are in the Christian music space. This one's going to be a do not miss episode. How does CCLI work? The ins, the outs. How do songwriters get paid through CCLI? How can you get paid through CCLI? What does it take to sign up? All of that good stuff. That's in the next episode. 
and head over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review if you haven't done so already. We'll see you on the next one. 